Hello everybody, my name is Eric Mercier. I am co-owner of Juice Imports, and today I'm gonna to be walking you through the very first edition of our Premium Natural Wine Club. The whole idea behind this project was that um, basically we ran out of wine. Uh, we got to a point where um, our regular wine club had grown so much that it became super challenging for us to find enough quantity of any of the wines that we wanted to work with. So we sort of decided that we were going to um, maybe cap it a little bit and, and say, hey, like we don't want to grow anymore. We actually like the size that we're at. Uh, it offers us this really great balance of um, being able to provide amazing quality, it's still being economically viable, um, and us still being able to use the wines that we really want to to showcase. And so we decided in order to sort of create a little bit more space, um, we wanted to start this premium wine club as well. So wines that were a little bit more expensive, uh, even more rare, and we really wanted to cap it at only 36 members ever. Um, we felt like 36 members was the, the perfect amount for us to, again, justify the economics of having to record an entire other podcast, do an entire write-up, uh, yet at the same time, you know, offer incredible value. Um, some of the wines in this club, uh, in this particular release, we actually received less than uh, 36 bottles of because the, the club isn't entirely full at the moment. Uh, so that means that we get to e use even rarer bottles, which is, again, obviously great for, for everybody involved. Um, because of the AGLC, um, the Alberta Gaming and Liquor Commission, they've decided that we can no longer advertise the club as an importing agency. So it's going to be entirely up to the shops. They've also said that we're not even allowed mentioning the shops by name because that counts as advertising for a licensee, which is uh, against the rules here in Alberta. Uh, again, I, we understand that these rules seem incredibly arbitrary, um, but that means that it's up to you and the stores in order to you know, get people on board. Um, so if anybody wants to, you know, if you want to get your friends to sign up or sign them up for the holiday season or whatever it happens to be, uh, you can do that through the stores themselves. Some of them have set up uh, an online location where you can sign up. Others you'll have to either call or send them an email or if their stores are uh, still open for in-store shopping, you can go in and, and chat with them there. Um, so this month we've decided to do uh, two reds and a rosé. We're gonna sort of alternate from month to month, uh, focusing more on red wine one month and then more on orange wine, uh, white bubbles. There'll still be a red wine in every single month, but it'll probably be two reds one month, um, one red the next month, two reds the month after that, and alternating back and forth. Um, we've also decided to sort of switch up the format a little bit and provide uh, maybe more information in the actual podcast rather than in the newsletter and then condense some of the information in the newsletter into, um, you know, sort of a more elaborate little chart and, and try and fit as much information into the actual write-ups about the wine as possible. Um, we're just trying to make this as easy as possible for everybody to get all the information they want in the most succinct manner. Uh, and so, yeah, we're, we're evolving it slowly and surely, but if anybody has any feedback about the format, feel free to, you know, let us know. We'll give you a, an email address and whatnot at the end of this, although I'm sure you already have it. Anyways, we're going to jump into our very first wine this month. This is a bottle of wine that we only ever receive 30 bottles a year of. Um, that's just five six packs, uh, not a lot of wine to go around. It usually means only a couple stores get them. Um, this year, um, we decided to include basically all of it in this actual wine club, which is very exciting for us. Um, 
The first one is the Silvervis Cinso. Uh, Silvervis is a project um, in the Swartland in South Africa. Swartland is just north of Cape Town. It's a region that we've talked about quite a bit on the podcast before. So for returning members uh, who have moved from the the uh, regular Natural Wine Club to the premium edition, um, you'll probably have heard a lot about Swartland. Uh, again, just north of Cape Town, this is very much a Mediterranean region, uh, meaning that it's quite warm year-round. In the winter, they have been known to get you know a little bit of snowfall, especially up on the tops of the mountains. But relatively speaking, it gets super hot during the summer and uh, is fairly mild during the winter. Most of the rainfall definitely comes in the winter, so this area is very dry. Um, all those droughts that you heard about in South Africa definitely heavily influence the wine style in this particular region over the course of the last um, five years or so. A lot of the vineyards that we uh, tend to import from are dry farming, meaning that they're not irrigating even in these drought conditions. And this can cause a lot of, uh, well, it can cause a lot of things. It can cause cause really delicious flavors and, uh, <laughs> and you know, using less resources in order to, to farm grapes. Um, but it can also lead to things like uh, the vine struggling to get the same crop load right, um, ripe. It can lead to things like uh, higher pHs in the actual grape berries. Uh, it could lead things to nutrient deficiencies. Um, so there's a lot of work that has to be done in the vineyard if you're going to maintain dry farming. The older the vines, they usually have less issue being dry farmed, especially if they've been dry farmed their entire lives. They tend to have more established root systems, meaning that the roots are, are going deeper underground, they're able to access more water. Um, but there are a handful of different things that you can do in the vineyard in order to uh, A, not have to water, um, and B, protect the water that actually is in the soil. And the big thing for, for us is always cover crops. Uh, cover crops Contrary to, uh, I guess, sort of popular belief, especially during sort of like the, the 80s and 90s from a farming perspective, um, a lot of the, there was sort of like this, I don't know, anecdotal idea that um, cover crops basically like sucked up all the water and then meant that there was no water left for the actual vines to use. But if you're using the right cover crops, this really isn't the case. In fact, it's the opposite. It basically means that uh, when it rains, the water is, it's easier for it to penetrate the actual soils because those root systems allow um, basically more channeling. So the water can actually get deeper into the soils because of these cover crops. Not only that, but once it does get hot out during the day in the non-rainy part of the season or the rainy part of the day, um, that water is not just immediately evaporating from this dry soil. Uh, it's actually being locked underground because of sort of the protective mechanism um, of these cover crops. Somebody in um, Priorat did a study and showed that the soils actually remain cooler underneath cover crops as well, which again prevents that evaporation, um, but also makes sure that the vines aren't shutting down. Over a certain temperature, vines will actually shut down to protect themselves. Um, it depends on the grape variety, but it can be as low as sort of 30, 32 degrees. Um, although some grape varieties uh, won't shut down until well over 40 degrees, which is quite astonishing. Um, 
so either way, uh, you know, for a lot of the, the wineries that we work with, they're, they're doing dry farming despite all these drought conditions. So that kind of gives you a feel for the land. Um, the soil here is uh, really interesting. This vineyard is uh, extremely special because this is where two different soil types are meeting. If you look at sort of from region region to region, um, in parts of the Swartland, you end up with uh, decomposed granite. So basically granite that has been broken down over the course of tens of thousands of years into basically sand. Like you can literally just scoop it up with your hands. It feels quite nice actually. Um, and so you have that. And then in other parts you have schist. Um, and so these two soil types sort of I basically lead to the different styles that we're seeing from the Swartland. Um, they, they have this sort of fingerprint on the wines. Um, and for me, granite and schist are, are both incredibly beautiful soil types for making quite mineral red wines in particular. Um, Swartland is, is sort of one of the rare areas um, where I think uh, whites on granite have you know, again, people are going to argue with me a lot, I'm sure, over this. But for me, I tend to, to think of granite as more of like a red wine soil type, um, at least in the, in the styles that I like to drink, although there are definitely exceptions, like weird examples of, of semillon being grown on granite in southern Chile, for instance. Um, you know, you have you have that as being, again, a good exception to the rule. Um, but for me, I really like red wines on granite. They tend to have, again, this ultra mineral characteristic, this spice to it, this pepperiness um, that makes the, the white wine seem a little bit more sturdy, a little bit more chunky. Uh, again, I like that style occasionally in white wines, but uh, for me, I, th I think it's, you know, it's a, it's a red wine soil type uh, more often than not. And in particular, these grapes that um that make this really sort of like perfumed sort of peppery style i think that granite shines through in the wine is almost being this this again sort of uh peppery spicy characteristic and so by using grape varieties that tend to have that spicy peppery characteristic i, I feel like it just really integrates well into the wine um you know you have uh like beaujolais uh, being a really great example with Gamay Noir, again, a great variety that's quite spicy, quite floral, um, and it's really amped up by the granite. Uh, Syrah does super well on, on granite, uh, again, just sort of adding to that meaty, gamey, spicy quality. And in this case, we have Sinso. So Sinso has been planted in South Africa for an extraordinarily long period of time, but it's seldom been, um, I guess, focused on up until the last, I don't know, decade or so. Uh, so they're really old plantings because it's been around for so long, but it was used mostly as a bulk grape. So it was used as a grape variety basically to round out other grape varieties. So whether you had uh, Syrah, which again, back in the day, they often called uh, Shiraz just because of stylistic influences from Australia. Um, you have things like that. You have Mouvedre in this area. You have uh, Grenache. Um, and basically they were adding Cinso to all these things, even to, to more Bordeaux varieties like Cab and Merlot, they were adding Cinso um, in order to end up with this sort of more well-rounded version. But because Cinso wasn't really that famous, there was no reason to bottle it on its own. There's no, I don't know, at least in the entire time that I worked in wine retail, there was not a single person who came in looking for a Cinso. So therefore, by putting it on the label or trying to market a Cinso, you were again, kind of pushing a rock uphill. Uh, it, was, it was not really worth your time. The unfortunate thing about that is that we sort of missed out on the opportunity to drink really, really amazing Cinso. Um, just because something's unpopular doesn't mean 
that it isn't extraordinarily good. And fortunately, over the last 10 years, there's been huge investment into uh, marketing Cinso as potentially being um, South Africa's signature grape other than Pinotage. Uh, Pinotage is very... Um, it pushes people in two different directions. People have very strong opinions about Pinotage. Either they love it or they hate it. And so by having something like Sinso that's a little bit more universally appealing, um, I think that you know they're hoping that they can market themselves as like, hey, this is the place to drink single vineyard, high quality Sinso um, at a range of price points uh, that really express terroir and the uniqueness of South Africa. Um, for me, this is basically as good as it gets. Um, this particular wine is uh, outrageously complex. Uh, it has all the elegance of Pinot Noir, but then the suppleness of something like Grenache from the Southern Rhone, uh, a sort of more lightly extracted style. Uh, so you have this this amazing combination of, of sati satiation uh, as well as refreshment. Uh, I think that's what Cinso does the best. In really hot climates, it's hard to make delicate wines. Um, and this is a great variety that does that really well. It tends to stay a little bit lower in alcohol. Uh, it does have trouble uh, maintaining a low pH, so it, it loses its acidity uh, quite quickly if you're not farming it correctly. So it is challenging to work with from that perspective, but um, it tends to make these more sort of ethereal, delicate styles of wine if you're farming it well. Uh, and that's definitely what's happening here. Uh, this is made by Ryan Mosert, so um, just one of the most thoughtful winemakers I've ever met. Uh, amazing guy to get to geek out with, that's for sure. Um, he's doing quite the process on this particular wine. Uh, so the, the grapes are harvested in the Pardeberg. The Pardeberg is sort of the southern end of the Swartland, and it's a, a mountain that kind of looks like uh, if you put your hand out in front of you on the table uh, and spread your fingers, that's what the mountain looks like. It looks like sort of one big hump in the middle being the back of your hand, uh, and then all of these uh, like gullies, um, which would be sort of like between your fingers, I suppose. Um, that's kind of how they, they describe it, and it looks pretty much like that. If you get a chance, go on Google Earth and uh, take a peek at the Pardeberg. Uh, it's, a, it's a really beautiful spot, and you can actually zoom in right on the vineyards, which is really cool. Um, so they're harvesting the grapes from the Pardeberg, uh, bringing them to the winery, and they're doing whole cluster fermentation, which means that they're not removing the grapes from the from the stalks. We'll talk about this a little bit more with our next wine and what it adds to it, um, but just know that they're not taking the grapes off the stalks. Uh, they're gently hand crushing it over the course of uh, you know a week or two um, to extract just a little bit of flavor, a little bit of intensity from those skins, but trying not to extract any bitterness or any of the uh, you know, offensively phenolic characteristics. You don't want it to be too harsh. Um, so he's doing that. Um, then they press off the grapes, uh, and that goes into concrete eggs. So literally like an egg-shaped concrete fermenter. Um, it then hangs out there for an entire year. Then they rack it, uh, meaning that they pull all the um, all the wine off of the solids. The solids over the course of the year will have settled in the bottom, a um, little bit less so in a concrete egg. An egg is is shaped so that that sediment is kind of like constantly churning. The wine is sort of alive and always rolling. It's not just sitting there. Um, but they're still able to, to get it off of most of that sediment um, that's settled to the bottom, at least all the heavier stuff. 
Um, and then they're taking it and putting it into stainless steel for an additional year of aging. So this is like quite the long process. That's why the current vintage is, is 2017. So it's actually got quite a bit of age if you consider that they harvested this probably in, uh, in February uh, of 2017. Uh, so actually got a little bit of age on it, which is pretty cool. Um, and then they age it for an additional year in bottle before releasing it. So this is an enormous process, but they feel like that really long élevage. So um, élevage basically means like the raising of the wine, sort of the upbringing of the wine, like it's your child. Uh, you're trying to prepare it for the world. And by giving it a longer élevage, th that longer aging period before release, they feel like the wine will be way more stable for long-term aging. So if you did feel like tucking this in your cellar for an additional you know, five, six years, uh, they've really set it up for success, um, which I really like. Um, from a flavor perspective here, uh, this wine is just gorgeous. It's super saturated and like bright red fruit characteristics, um, some dark fruit in there as well, but mostly focused on things like um, like really ripe red currants, dried cherries, um, that really like kind of roasty strawberry pie kind of characteristic. Um, but then also the wildness of, of sort of this, this South African outback equivalent um, where you get lots of spices, lots of dried herbs, um, almost a meatiness like you'd expect in the Northern Rhone. Uh, it's just a gorgeous wine. I, I think this is one of the, the coolest wines that we import. Uh, plus the packaging is outrageous. Uh, if you're trying to get into this, you definitely don't need to cut the wax off the top or anything. Just take your corkscrew and drill directly through the, the wax and it'll come off as you uh, pull the cork out. Um, little, little trick there for you. So before I get to... Uh, carried away describing that wine. We're gonna jump into our, our next one here. Uh, so we're gonna talk about Cambridge Road. Uh, this is in Marlborough, which is in New Zealand. Uh, this is sort of the southern tip of the North Island, uh, give or take. Uh, it's just north of Wellington for those of you who have who have traveled and if you ever get a chance definitely go to Wellington one of my favorite places in the world. Great place to drink good wine and good beers and good cocktails and um, you know, cool art galleries and, you know, it's very windy there, but the beach is still nice. Uh, <laughs> so definitely worth going down and, you know, taking a, a trip over and going to visit Lance. Um, New Zealand is an interesting place to try and sell wine from. I think that there's sort of this preconceived notion that, uh, you know, New Zealand is for wines that are, you know, 20 to $30 and you should never really spend a bunch of wine from New Zealand and um, or a bunch of money on wine from New Zealand. Um, and I think that's a, that's a real shame. I think some of the most amazing wines in the world are coming out of New Zealand, uh, especially if that, at that sort of mid to top end price point. Um, I've gotten to try a bunch of really incredible Rieslings from, you know, deep in the South. Uh, I've gotten to try a lot of Syrah from places like Hawke's Bay, um, some cabs from Gimlet Gravels, and they make basically every style of wine that you'd really want incredibly well. Uh, and so I think that, you know, even though it's a hard sell for us trying to convince people to drink wine from New Zealand, I think that these wines are incredibly valuable and, and worth seeking out, um, especially something like this Pinot Noir, which, which, you know, most of New Zealand does incredibly well. Um, so this is a this is a really interesting vineyard. Lance basically discovered this vineyard and and wanted to carry on in his grandmother's footsteps. Uh, his grandmother had an amazing garden and and sort of instilled in him this idea that the things that you grow nourish people. 
And he really loved that idea. Like you're, you're literally keeping people alive through the thing that you're enjoying doing. And although wine is, you know, seldom considered sustenance anymore, uh, it definitely has been for thousands and thousands of years. So I think he, he sort of took that to heart and ended up working some harvests and eventually was able to purchase this like small, beautiful vineyard in Martinborough. Um, He's obsessed with the entire area, so he's uh, he purchases fruit from a handful of organic farmers from around uh, this town, from a bunch of different soil types, a bunch of different aspects. Um, but his vineyard is quite steep. Uh, it's actually terraced. That's how steep it is. Uh, so if you get to a certain level of steepness, terracing helps you prevent things like erosion, um, allows you to get slightly higher yields and, and is just easier to work as a general statement. Uh, and so his vineyard is actually terraced. Um, the vines are over 30 years old, which is, again, quite a rarity in New Zealand. New Zealand was definitely focused on uh, production quantity as opposed to uh, exclusively, you know, they're really trying to balance quality and quantity, uh, I guess I should say. Um, and so they're you know, ripping out vines after, you know, 25 to 30 years and replanting because that's sort of the life cycle of a vine is it's most productive up until the point that it's 30 and then it starts going downhill and becomes less and less and less productive. But the quality increases, um, or at least arguably, some people would argue the opposite, but uh, you're getting more concentrated flavors, more intensity, the vine comes into more of a balance. So you need to sort of fiddle around with it less. When vines are young, they're often quite vigorous. Um, they're more interested in, you know, producing leaves and shoots and also acquiring sugar in the grapes as opposed to uh, complex flavors. Um, but as the vines get older, they tend to create a lot more intensity. And so, you know, producers like this, when they, when they get to work with older vines, it's a real treat and you can really, you know, see the terroir shine through in these cases. Um, he has a variety of different clones planted in this vineyard. So what a lot of people don't realize is that most vines in a vineyard are actually genetically identical to one another and were propagated from a single vine. Um, these vines are from specific places in the world. Uh, so you could have, um, you know, particular, in this case, we're talking about Pinot Noir. So maybe we should just stick with Pinot Noir, but there's uh, tons and tons of different Pinot Noir clones that are all, you know, give or take gen genetically identical to one another, but with minor, minor tweaks. Um, and this happened mostly naturally um, and then was selected upon. So basically somebody noticed in their vineyard that a particular vine was really resistant to something like, you know, powdery mildew. Uh, the vine never had powdery mildew, even though everything else had powdery mildew. Uh, and so they basically took a cutting from that vine, uh, propagated it, planted it in the vineyard, saw if it did well, uh, if that particular grape tasted really, really delicious. Um, and they're basically selecting for those natural mutations. And then eventually that would become something that people all around the world could buy, um, you know, propagated little plants from that one original plant. And that's how we end up with most of the vines that we have in the entire world. And so you can kind of go through like catalogs and when you're planting a vineyard and select uh, certain clones of a particular grape um, often called biotypes as well. If you're if you're not in the wine world, uh, you have this with basically every other species um, that's cultivated, at least. And so, you can select for different things. You can select for uh, how vigorous it is, how well 
um, it grows in sandy soils or you know low pH soils or uh, if you want higher yields you can select for that if you want less or more color you can select for that and so um, the ones that he has in his vineyard are CL5, Abel, CL6, 114, 667, and 115. So if you search you know, on the internet for Pinot Noir CL5 clone, you can get a whole sort of documentation of what that particular thing means. Um, the original clones were mostly from Burgundy, from different towns. So you would end up with, uh, with a clone from a particular village uh, and they would select for that particular style and that's ended, what ended up leading to uh, so much diversity within Burgundy. A lot of the terroir actually comes from these uh, sort of like clonal selections, local clonal selections. Uh, the opposite of this is what we call Selection Mazal, which is basically where uh, you're propagating off of uh, healthy vines in your own vineyard, but you're not propagating to all the same uh, all the same clone. You're choosing a variety of different plants that are in your vineyard and propagating from there, as opposed to buying like a generic clone that's planted all over the world. Um, so you could see probably a lot of these clones. Um, in the Okanagan, for instance, or you can see them in California, or you could see them in Australia. Uh, these clones are planted everywhere in the world, and they'd be genetically identical to one another and have one mother plant, uh, however long ago that, that might have been. So it's a super cool part of the world. It's really fun to geek out about. Um, it's not talked about a ton, uh, but definitely should be because it has as much impact on, on the wine, I would say, uh, in certain cases, as soil type. Uh, the difference between clones can can actually feel quite drastic, uh, especially in certain grape varieties, Pinot Noir being one of them, Chardonnay being another one, uh, where you have things like, uh, you know, the Mendoza clone of Chardonnay that tastes like, you know, the complete antithesis of some of the other clones. So it's cool to, to taste them side by side, if at all possible, which it usually isn't. Uh, it's usually hard to even figure out which clone is planted, uh, especially on some of the older vineyards, but it's, it's definitely worth geeking out about every once in a while. Um, he's fermenting this wine as whole clusters, uh, or mostly as whole clusters. He didn't do the whole thing whole cluster. Um, but Pinot Noir really takes to this style of winemaking very well. Um, it tends to, fermenting whole cluster tends to uh, create a lot of fruit flavors. Um, in its youth, it has a lot of isoamyl acetate, which is uh, often described as being bubblegummy. So it's best to let these wines age for a period of time and blow off some of that characteristic. Um, fortunately, that compound is very volatile, so it wants to combine with air. Uh, so it basically like leaps out of the wine and into the air, uh, and then is gone from the wine eventually. So as this wine ages, it loses some of those more primary fruit characteristics and, and develops all this extra complexity. Um, but that fermentation style basically leads to having uh, more of those fruit characteristics, especially in their youth. Uh, it can also soften the tannins, depending on uh, how you're, how long you're macerating um, the grapes all together. Um, it can lead to things like uh, softening the acidity, and especially in an area like this where uh, it's a little bit cooler. Uh, if you've ever been to New Zealand, it's obviously much less cool than the last region we talked about, which is the Swartland in South Africa, uh, this is substantially cooler than that. So you tend to end up with grapes with higher acidity. And so unlike in South Africa, where you're trying to preserve acidity at all costs, here you're trying to soften acidity in some cases. And so by doing uh, whole cluster fermentation, 
Um, you have things like potassium leaching out of the stalks uh, and into the wine, which tends to soften um, the, basically helps eliminate some of the acidity. Uh, and then through the grapes actually using their own acid as sustenance, so they use mas uh, malic acid as sustenance for fermentation, uh, you're getting a softening of the malic acid. And the malic acid is the type of acid in a grape that's quite harsh. Um, it's the same acid that we have in, in like green apples, for instance, uh, and that tends to get softened through this quality. Sometimes that's a desirable characteristic, especially in small quantities. It can add a tartness and a brightness and a freshness, uh, like you see in New Zealand Sauvignon Blanc, for instance. Um, but in something like Pinot Noir, where you want a little more softness, um, that's that silky, kind of supple quality, you want to definitely be trying to get rid of as much of that malic acid as possible, either by ripening on the vine. Uh, so as grapes sit on the vine for longer, they lose a lot of their malic acid. Um, so you can either leave it out there for a little bit longer, although that's also going to lead to higher alcohol percentages in the, in the final wine. Um, or you can do things like this, where you're doing whole cluster fermentation and uh, what we call intracellular fermentation or carbonic maceration. Um, so all these things are going to lead to the lead to the wine being a little bit softer. Um, after that whole cluster fermentation, uh, this is aged in uh, old barrels. So old barrels don't have the same amount of flavor that new barrels do. Um, again, I always use the reference of, of a tea bag. Uh, the first time you put a tea bag in water, it extracts a ton of flavor. Second time you do it, a little bit less flavor. Third time, a little bit less flavor. And eventually you're going to put that tea bag in water and it's not going to extract anything more. And that's sort of the barrels that he's using. Barrels that are a little bit older, they're not adding any oak flavor necessarily. Although there definitely is like the tiniest little hint of oak here. Um, most of that woodsy flavor is actually coming from the terroir itself. Um, the actual grapes, the actual winemaking, as opposed to a flavor from an actual wood barrel. Uh, aging in wood is really great for this wine because um, it allows for micro-oxygenation, so basically uh, tiny amounts of oxygen getting into the wine, which helps soften it, but it doesn't allow the wine to oxidize. So th there's sort of this threshold where you go from softening the wine with oxygen to the wine oxidizing, which is where you end up with... Um, again like you can imagine cutting an apple open and, and leaving it on the counter the difference between like that fresh apple and the apple that's been on the counter for a couple hours uh and is brown and has more of those sort of like dried apple flavors uh it's that difference in freshness so this basically allows you to capture that freshness um at the same time as softening making it a little more more supple uh, he then ages the wine for an additional six months in uh, in tank. Uh, this seems to be our, our theme between the last two producers is these long elevage times. And again, the goal of that is to to get a wine that's going to age as long as possible. Um, you know, this wine, I, I would not hesitate to hold on for, to it for an additional five years uh, because we actually do have a little bit of this wine left. If you, if you are on the hunt for a bottle, reach out to the store that you purchased it from uh, and definitely grab a second bottle to, to put in the cellar. Um, but that being said, it's tasting so incredibly good right now. Uh, I think Mark and I, between the two of us, have drank a substantial amount of our allocation of this wine. Uh, it's just everything I love about Pinot Noir. It drinks like really good Burgundy, but at half the price. Um, has all that intensity of fruit, some savoriness. Uh, it's, it's an amazing wine, and it pairs with so many things. Pinot Noir is incredibly uh, useful. Uh, it goes with a, a huge variety of foods, way more than almost any other grape variety, or at least red grape variety, that is. Um, 
white wines are almost universally going to be more parable than red wines. Red wines kind of have a, a very narrow, I don't know, <laughs> a, a very narrow spectrum of things they can actually pair with. But uh, in that narrow spectrum, uh, I'd say that Pinot Noir has uh, amongst the largest spectrums. Um, this is also really, really low sulfur. Uh, so only 12 parts per million um, were added to this, which is, uh, if you read any any papers on sulfur, is actually not really that useful. Uh, I think uh, like 20 to 25 parts per million is sort of like the threshold for usefulness of sulfur. This was more just like a, uh, you know, you want to feel good at, when you go to bed at night that this wine is going to, you know, age perfectly and you felt like you did just the right amount to, you know, really, really make sure that this wine was safe. But he basically tasted the wine, uh, did some tests on it and was like, hey, I think this wine is, is perfect with out really any sulfur at all, which is great. Uh, I don't think it needs it. I think that it's just absolutely gorgeous just the way that it is. Um, again, as far as pairings go, you can put this with pretty much anything. I think I said like roast chicken. Uh, I know it's the most boring pairing of all time and I've used it a thousand times over, but when I really want a wine to shine, I don't like to pair it with a super complex dish. I like to have something that's gonna be very satisfying, like, you know, but really let the wine shine through. Um, yeah, like I would drink this wine because I like the wine. <laughs> um, the last wine that we have today uh, is a rosé. Uh, I think that rosé really gets overlooked during the winter months. Uh, I think there are styles of rosé that really lend themselves to this time of year, uh, especially this sort of style where it's a little bit more rich, more savory, more powerful. Uh, I'd say that this is, um, you know, maybe somewhere between the Pinot Noir and Cinso as far as power level goes. Uh, this is like a, a really intense rosé, so I, I think that it would happily fit between those two wines uh, from an intensity and body perspective. Um, so this is uh, Bolendok Napia, um, which I'm, you know, horrible at pronouncing, I'm, I'm sure. Um, but I, it basically means April Fools. Uh, I, I don't know the whole story of, uh, of why he decided to name this wine uh, April Fools. Um, or I think they, they might call it the, the Ship of Fools in, in Hungary. Um, but I'm really glad that he did because it made for a really beautiful label. Uh, each one of his wines has um, this uh, artist who, who just does the most amazing, um, I don't know if we'd call it calligraphy or, or you know, what, what we would call this, but basically writing very beautiful looking letters. Uh, so if you ever get a chance, definitely pick up some of the other Peter Vetzer wines um, because the, all the labels are super, super cool. Uh, this wine, despite us receiving the most of it, is probably actually the smallest production wine. Um, we've decided to include how many bottles came to Alberta on our uh, on our little, I don't know, little write-up now, just so you get an idea of, of how really special these wines are. And this one's sort of deceiving because we received 120 bottles of this wine this year, uh, which is, again, incredibly small compared to most other wines being imported into Alberta. Um, if you think of something like Apothic, they're literally getting thousands of cases of that wine. Uh, you know, I wouldn't be surprised if they're selling more than a pallet a week of that wine in Alberta uh, for the entire year. Uh, versus something like this, I think his entire production is somewhere between four and 500 bottles. Uh, <laughs> and so we actually got something like, you know, 20 to 25% of his entire production of this wine. Uh, last year, I think we got somewhere around 50% of his entire production. And he basically, it was just luck. Uh, we 
we didn't know how much he made and we just ordered a certain amount and he put it on a pallet and then we were talking to him um, when we went and visited him about a year ago, uh, a little more than a year ago, I guess. And uh, he was like, oh yeah, you guys got a little bit of the rosé, right? Like, oh yeah, for sure. We got, I don't know, like, you know, 200 bottles or 240 bottles or something like that. He's like, oh, that was a mistake. I should not have sent you that much. I don't have a lot of this wine. <laughs> uh, and basically up until last year, he just made this wine for personal consumption. So last year was our first vintage of the, the actual commercial wine. Uh, up until that point, he basically just made, you know, two to 300 bottles just for him to drink with, you know, his wife and his friends and, and give to the restaurants that support him and, and sort of that thing. So it wasn't even really a commercial wine until recently. So despite it being A, the least expensive wine by a long shot this month, um, but B, also the wine that we got the most amount of uh, by double, uh, it's actually probably the rarest wine. So it, it's kind of cool to, I don't know, get the background on, on all of that. So to digress a little bit, this wine uh, is made by Peter Wetzer. Uh, Peter Wetzer is one of our favorite winemakers in the entire world. Uh, it's hard to express how much we enjoy his wines, how obscenely high the quality is uh, across the board, especially for the price. Um, some of his whites this year, I think, honestly taste like they're they're 10 times the price that they actually are. Uh, you know, they're, they're like $25 on the shelf, and they honestly taste like, um, or not $25 on the shelf, I guess a little bit more than that, $35 on the shelf maybe. Um, but they honestly taste like they're $200 bottles of wine from, you know, Merso uh, in, in Burgundy. Like, it's, they're astonishing. Uh, and I don't just say this because I, I really like him and because I know the wines. Uh, I got blinded on one of his wines, so I got poured this without knowing what it was um, by uh, somebody who works at a wine store, and I guessed that it was like $200 Burgundy uh, without knowing it, and it was a $35 bottle of white wine from Hungary. So this goes to show like the incredible, incredible quality uh, for price that we're, we're getting out of Peter Wetzer. Um, so he, his actual winery is located in Chopron. It's underneath his house. Uh, he makes somewhere around, you know, 800 to 1,000 cases a year. Uh, he bottles everything in his backyard, uh, which is like where his kids, you know, swing set is. Uh, this is about as small and, you know, arguably homemade as, as possible. But this region has a huge history of um, of winemaking. This was considered the wine capital of this entire region for a very long period of time. Um, and that was when it included areas that are now um, both in Slovakia and in Austria. Uh, so Burgenland um, and Bratislava used to all be part of this one region that's that's now technically in Hungary um, around the, the town of Chopron. Um, so this wine is made from two different grape varieties. Uh, it's mostly made from Pinot Noir, so you'll be familiar with Pinot Noir from uh, our last wine, uh, as well as Keck Francoche. Uh, Keck Francoche is uh, sort of the indigenous grape variety to the region. Uh, it means uh, either blue grape from France or, or maybe has some reference to uh, the bills that were used uh, during sort of Napoleon's raid across this particular area and it, it used to be said that these uh, blue French notes uh, would be traded for one bottle of Keck Francoche uh, or this particular grape variety and so it developed the, the moniker of Keck Francoche so like a blue note from France equals one of these bottles of wine uh, which I think is a really great story as well. Um, Pinot Noir again tends to be very elegant, very delicate, very pretty versus Keck Franco is just a little bit more powerful. So by blending these two together again you're ending up with a, a really nice um, sort of breadth of, of structures. Everything from 
bright and fresh to a little bit more powerful, a little bit more intense, a little more savory. Um, Rosés are made by uh, either fermenting the wines in the skins for a really short period of time um, or directly pressing. So you would just take the red grapes, put them in a press, crush them really gently so that you're not disrupting the skins too much, uh, and basically clear or very pale pink juice will run out of those grapes, uh, depending on how gently you're actually pressing them. Red grapes, just like white grapes, are white on the inside, and uh, red wines get all their color from macerating with the skins, uh, versus white grapes are usually not macerated with the skins. It's just the juice. And so by using essentially just the juice or a short maceration time, um, you're only getting a very light pink color, uh, in this case more of a medium pink color. Uh, so it's it's a really good style for me. Um, you know, I, again, like I was saying at the start of this conversation, uh, rosé is really underrated. I, I think that rosé has the potential to make wines that are of a quality equivalent to red wine and white wine. It's just so seldom done because demand for sort of crushable rosé is so high that th there's no real point in making wines that are more expensive, more nuanced, more uh, subtle. So it's, it's really exciting for me when somebody's making a wine like this. That's, that's very exciting. Um, this wine, unlike most rosés, uh, is actually aged in barrel. And it actually goes through what we call malolactic conversion, which is something that basically every wine in our portfolio goes through. But some people uh, add sulfur or um, sterile filter their wines to prevent this from happening. Uh, you can add other things to, to prevent it from happening. But, you know, most of the wines in our portfolio go through this process naturally, which makes the wine uh, softer, has more mouthfeel to it. Um, but then also aging in barrel will lead to, again, that micro-oxygenation that we talked about with the last wine, um, where it makes the wine feel more uh, supple. And especially with a bigger, bolder rosé like this, barrel actually makes a lot of sense. But it, aging in barrel also eliminates a lot of those overtly fruity qualities that we'd expect uh, from rosé. So this is going to be again, more somewhere between red wine and rosé. That's the thing is it's sort of a continuum uh, from red to white. It's And, and rosés can be, you know, anywhere on that spectrum, closer to the red side or closer to the white side. And this is definitely falling more on the, on the red side of the spectrum. Um, therefore, I think you should definitely serve this a little less chilled than you would most rosé. Uh, I've actually drank this at, you know, sort of like cellar temperature. Um, so roughly, you know, 13 to 15 degrees Celsius, uh, is kind of an ideal drinking temperature for this, which is sort of also what I'd recommend for the reds. Uh, you know, I like drinking the reds at sort of maybe 16 to 18 degrees Celsius, kind of in that neighborhood. Um, you know, a little bit less than room temperature, um, you know, just, just a little chill on it, just to add that freshness, that brightness to it. Uh, I feel like I can just taste, you know, way more in the wine. It doesn't feel as heavy. Um, and so I definitely think, you know, just a little chill on this, not, not an outrageous amount of chill. Uh, it doesn't need to frost your glass or anything like that. Um, flavor perspective here, again, this is wildly complex for rosé. Uh, for me, I get all these really amazing sort of autumnal qualities. Uh, this really sort of like dried blood orange, this uh, almost like winter leaves uh, kind of quality to it. Um, rooibos tea, 
uh, going back to the, the first wine that we had from South Africa, but definitely like that honeybush tea. Um, it's got a lot of those characteristics, almost botanical in a sense, but those warm, um, warm sort of aromatic botanicals. Uh, I get a lot of those characteristics. Obviously a lot of fruit here as well, but the fruit is almost, again, more reminiscent of, of red fruit rather than the citrus that you get off of a lot of, you know, Provencial style rosés. So for me, again, from a pairing perspective, this has a lot more uh, in common with a red wine. Uh, I do think this would be really wicked with, again, something like salmon, something like trout, um, one of those, those fish that people are like, if you're gonna use, you know, a red wine and fish, like maybe those are the ones. Uh, so see if you get a light red wine, like nice and chilled, this is gonna be perfect in those sort of situations. Uh, I think it would go really well with that. I also really like this with root vegetables. Um, I think that something about the texture on the palate is just like really great with, um, you know, like baked sweet potato or like even better than that, like bake a sweet potato, but then like throw it on the barbecue for a second to give it some char. Uh, and then like top that with, you know, something kind of on the, um, you know, South American sort of like spice spectrum. Um, that's kind of a vibe that I really like with this. Uh, I, I think it's a, a really fun pairing, but again, feel free to let us know what you're using as a pairing. All right, I think that's uh, enough chatting for me today. Uh, <laughs> if you have any questions about any of the wines or, um, you know, want to ask us anything about wine in general, feel free to reach out. Uh, you can send us uh, a direct message on Instagram. We're just at Juice Imports. You can send us an email. Uh, my email address is eric, E-R-I-K, at juiceimports.com. Um, yeah, we'd love to hear from you. We'd love to hear about your, uh, you know, your feedback on our very first uh, premium wine club, which we're uh, secretly calling Juice Plus, uh, but I feel like that name might already be used for uh, <laughs> for something. Uh, either way, so yeah, we'd love to hear from you. Uh, I think this club is going to be way too much fun. Uh, I'm so excited for it. Uh, I can't wait to to share the wines next month already, and we haven't even sent out this month yet. Uh, anyways, thanks again for taking the time. Uh, we'll chat with you soon. Bye.